Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast, day 30 or so from Corona Lockdown. Uh, this week's guest is really less a guest than a host. Uh, I talk with Ted Robinson. Uh, he has a podcast for YouTube, and I said, you know what, let's just talk between ourselves. I'll take the audio, you take the audio, and we can both use it for our own purposes. So this is a fun discussion. You know Ted, of course, from his longtime work in tennis on NBC. USA Tennis Channel, often alongside John McEnroe, great friend of the sport, great broadcaster, great journalist in the sport. A little backstory, about 10 years ago, Ted roped me into joining him on a segment we called Passing Shots for Tennis Channel, then uh, nascent Tennis Channel. This essentially was my intro to uh, tennis on TV. Um, Luckily, he covered for uh, for my amateur habits we have revised passing shots. Hopefully, it's a little better than it was in uh, in 2008 or whatever when we debuted this. Um, but this is uh, Ted, and uh, t- t- Ted and I are talking here, and it's a number of tennis topics. Ted is in Northern California. I am holed up on the East Coast. We talk about tennis. We ask the question, does this break benefit anyone? What does tennis look like when we return? Is there such a thing as normalcy? What is the role of society in a pandemic well, we didn't go that far, but uh, a lot of fun tennis talk um, with Ted Robinson, and here we are. All right, let's. So we're going to try to keep this moving here. So, John, I have been uh, one of those people from the very beginning when the when Roland Garros, when the FFT said we're moving. I was my first reaction was that's awesome. Somebody is actually taking a proactive step to give us something positive. I understand the means were not necessarily the best. The end, though, I think was well worth it. Where do you come down? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I mean, this is one of the four pillars of the sport, and everybody's saying, well, there was a breach of etiquette. What about the communication? Could you imagine what would have happened if the FFT had gone through these channels 
and asked all of the events that it conflicted with if they might be okay. There would be threats of litigation. There would be board meetings. There would be conference calls. They just said, you know what? We're the big dog. We're putting up $50 million in prize money. 256 players are going to get 50 grand if they don't win a point. We think the players are going to play. Here's our date. Deal with it. And I get it. I mean, I, I don't think this was particularly healthy to tennis in the long term. I understand why people are upset. But also, I, I understand it from their perspective. They're one of the four biggest events, and they've got a right to wield a little bit of power. Well, again, it means we're great. We know that. We also know, I think we've all been around the French uh, Roland Garros and the French Federation enough to know they don't necessarily care. They just do what they want to do. <laughs> and uh, that's yeah. sort of what they did here. So I understand that, that people's feelings are bruised, but these are extraordinary times. They, they do what they do, and they do it more so when they have whatever, how many hundreds of millions of dollars of debt service on a, on a new roof, and they do it when they don't have insurance, unlike Wimbledon where they don't get any sort of recompense if they don't hold the event. I, I get it. I mean, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, means versus ends, and we can talk about process versus outcome, but I understand why they did what they did. I, I'm reminded, I say this to you, I, I think you've heard the story before, the year that, and it was the early 2010s, I forget which year, but Djokovic and Nadal ended up playing the final into Monday. So on Friday of that final weekend, it was about a 600% chance of rain on Sunday, right? And you saw that it was probably going to be Djokovic and Nadal, and it was a point where you thought they could easily take five hours to play. So NBC sort of gently, a little bit of my involvement with our great friend John McGinnis, the producer, kind of said, why don't you think about bumping up the start time a little bit? Because they start at three, basically 3.10, first ball, which gives you six hours to play five hours of tennis. That gives you virtually no margin for error. And we said, maybe you want to bump it up and start a couple hours early so you can absorb a rain delay. Oh, no, no, no. We cannot interfere with lunch. <laughs> true. So many of the high-end sponsors spend, and they, they promote the final day lunch for a year. They hire you know, very highly successful chefs, plan exquisite menus. We do not mess with lunch. I always joke that the media cafeteria at Roland Garros has, you know, it's, it's paella day and they have a wine steward and they have different cheese selection. I mean, you're used to media dining usually means, you know, you're, you're eating uh, soup with your hands and, uh, you know, at, at the Meadowlands. If the media dining has their own paella chef, you can only imagine the dining options for the people that have uh, spent tens of thousands of dollars for the courtside seats. But no, lunch is sacred, which is also the reason, you know this, lunch is, that's also why they say, I can't believe this. It's a Grand Slam semifinal and the stands are only half packed. Mm -hmm. And you want to say, no, 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 those tickets have been sold and those people are on the grounds. They just have a fork in one hand and a knife in the other and they'll get to the tennis when uh, they, they finish their last eclair. Yeah. And of course that Djokovic-Nadal final, they ended up getting burned by the rain. Nadal stopped. Nadal's the one that stopped playing that day. The referee didn't stop playing. Nadal said, I'm out. And it cost everybody, NBC, cost us a lot of money because you have to pay for everybody's flights to change and extra day hotel. But it cost the French Federation a lot of money, right? To reopen the grounds the next day. People don't understand. With 2001 Wimbledon, I was told was one million pounds. That the, that the All England Club, now again, certainly they could absorb this, but it was a million pounds to reopen the club on Monday with zero revenue coming in. 
to play the Rafter Ivanisevic final. You know what's interesting about all this, including this whole discussion we've been having about closed-door events where you just hold the events for, for TV and, and not for fans in the stands. This has really been an interesting referendum on how much do these events and these leagues value TV and media? How much do they value sponsors? How much do they value common fans? And how much do they value the suites? And if appeasing the guys who are buying your suites uh, mean more than TV, I, I can see why they would renew it the next day. I mean, one thing that's interesting, I, I don't know, this is utter rumor. So I, I, we're, we're in an informal setting, and uh, I hope this won't be used against me. But the, the rumor I've heard a few times now is that the U.S. Open, they really are hell-bent on playing the event this year. They've even looked into alternative dates. And one of the big holdups is they've got to do right by ESPN. And does ESPN want the U.S. Open deep in the fall when they have all their college football and they've got Monday night football? They don't. Um, and I think the USDA has got to figure out how much do they want to put on this event and how much are they willing to do it, even if it means pissing off their biggest TV partner. You, you know, John, that, that's my next passing shot is that very point is and you just touched on it. I think every sport is going through this. How do we come back? Mm -hmm. I think it's imperative for tennis to come back with competition as soon as they can. Safely, safely is the obvious caveat here. But safely meaning there may not be fans or maybe very limited fans, but competition. And I'm, I'm coming to this job from the standpoint of players ranked and we can all, we could each throw a dart and say 75 and below, 100 and below. I know you've already touched on this on, on TC Live about this. But those players, and by the way, there are assorted teams, physios, trainers, administrators, uh, the, the, the chair umpires, the administrators of the tours, broadcast entities around the world, and all the assorted people. That's a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs. And I just think it's imperative for tennis, when it's safe, to have competition, even if it means competition with limited access. You, you want me to play devil's advocate there? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. But the, the one thing I've heard is, is uh, the counter to that is, look, you're talking about athletes from all over the world, from different countries, with different health standards. You're talking about, as you say, teams and physios and journalists and tournaments. To have, even if you have a closed door scenario, and even if you don't have doubles or juniors, you're still talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people walking around the grounds. Given what we know about these spread rates and given what we know about how many fatalities result from these rates, if there are a thousand people at a major, which is a conservative, yeah, that's a pretty low estimate given there are 256 players in the main draw, a thousand people, you're still probably likely to have a few fatalities. Um, do, we, do we risk that? What do we do for a global sport where Western Europe might be on the mend, but other parts of the world might be behind. Do we say we're going to have the U.S. Open, but if you're from India, Iran, I'm just making up countries, but if you're from any of five countries, you can't play. Is, is that fair to still hold an event? Here, here I'll, I, 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 and you're 100% right, John, and I think this is what's going to happen. I'm going to hold this up. This is my dead and company pass from when Bill Walton took me to see the dead on New Year's Eve oh, nice. at the Senator in San Francisco. <laughs> And I think everybody's going to have to have one of these is what I'm saying. I think whenever we come back, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. everybody's going to have to be tested, right? And you're going to have to have a badge that proves you're clean. So I think that's going to be the answer. And I, I mean, how this plays out, I'm not sure, sure as heck not smart enough, but I believe that's how it's going to happen, right? Before you have any competition, 
whether it's domestic or international as tennis is, everybody's going to have to have some badge that says I'm clean. Right. And that probably goes for everything from schools to churches to movie yeah. theaters as well, I assume. Yeah. So the health of the tour is the other thing. And this is the other caveat. I thought that's where you were going to go with this because having majors that can generate excessive amounts of money from broadcast revenue, being able to play with limited access is one thing. For the tour, though, the week in, week out tour, I, I'm worried about that. And I know you've talked about this as well, John, and I've been thinking about some of the people we know well, Bob Moran, who runs the great event in Charleston, uh, Bill Oaks, who ran this great event in Winston-Salem the week before the Open for how many years now. Those are terrific events who need grip and grin, meet and greet, hit and giggle with the sponsors. For That's their economic spine, isn't it? And that's what I worry about when the tour finally does come back. I thought maybe optimistically tennis could use this period as a time to really reassess things and make some real changes and really think about structure and organization and governance and, and commissioner and maybe combining tours. We talk a lot about players and how they're suffering and there's some funds that are being d debated and, and passed around about sort of players, uh, essentially sort of compensation funds. I worry about some of these events and I'm, curious to see what the calendar looks like. I mean, we, we know what the margins are for some of these smaller events. Can they withstand a year of not having an event? And are there some sanctions that are now for sale where events have basically said, listen, I can't withstand this. I, I think that I think we're going to see sort of a, a different types of players emerging from this in different ways. And if you've got a home gym, that puts you at an advantage from I talked to Vacek Possible who's in an apartment in Vancouver doing push-ups and sit-ups. I think the part we're not talking about is, you know, Wimbledon's going to be fine. There'll be a U.S. Open this year or next year. There'll be an Indian Wells. But I think the tennis calendar could look a lot different after this. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I worry about that. Do you worry about that for the U.S.? Because we, we've already seen oh, enough yeah. thinning out of U.S. tournaments. We can't afford more. And there are governments overseas that would be happy to take – I mean, I'll just – we'll say Omaha. So I don't, uh, you know, so I don't prejudice anyone, but yeah, I mean, there is a market for these sanctions and sometimes these tournaments have discovered whether it's, it's New Haven. I mean, you had the same thing in, you know, in Scottsdale off and down California, they really, the UCLA event, they realize that their tournament is more valuable selling the sanction than trying to build this and hold this year after year. So yeah, I, I do worry about the U S events. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that John, this thinning, concept and that's something i've thought a lot about the last couple of weeks unfortunately you think this way because as i referenced the, those whatever benchmark tentpole number you want to use is at some point as this crisis prolongs will there will it will there be a thinning of the herd of just professional tennis players uh, and i think about this because i talked uh this somewhere within the last year with Larry Scott, who I work with on my other job with Pac-12, and of course Larry has a long-running history in tennis, and we were talking about the the issue that came up in 2019, right, about the points at the challengers and the ITFs, et cetera, et cetera. And Larry, who was involved initially in those formulations, and he said, "Look, the the initial concept of those levels was to not be a permanent resting place for the." if I can use the Bull Durham phrase, the Crash Davises of tennis. Yeah. It was supposed to be a launch pad for someone to launch. And if they can't launch from there, then you thin and we, and we move on. Um, and I'm wondering if this 
crisis that we're going through now is going to do that? Is it going to thin the herd of professional tennis players? I, I wonder uh, more darkly if it will lead to more corruption as, as players get more desperate. And certainly if there was incentive to fix matches six months ago, there certainly is now. I, it's just such a strange thing, though. I mean, I've heard this before, and I've heard, you know, we, we I, I know a, a colleague of ours, they refer, refer to as, as tennis hobbyists, these guys who are out there playing, and they've made a couple hundred bucks, and they're ranked number 1,300. And, yeah, maybe this infrastructure could and should only – accommodate a certain number of players at the same time I think it's strange for you can't imagine the NBA saying you know what too many players want to play basketball too many players are aspiring to the NBA let's cut jobs I mean wouldn't it be the role of tennis to increase opportunities and increase the market it's more as you say it's not just players it's that many more racket stringers and that many more coaches and physios it's a little strange to tennis to be in a position say you know what way too many people want to be tennis players we need to we need to slash jobs. Um, but I, I think sort of the, the supply and demand of tennis is very interesting. And yeah, I mean, maybe they're only a finite, the same way there are a lot of waitresses and waiters in, in Hollywood who haven't been able to make it in film. Not everyone could be Roger Federer. And maybe what we're learning is there is an optimal number of people that want to be pro tennis players. It's, it's really an interesting sort of basic economics issue. Um, it sort of t- tells you something about markets. But I also think when you have this kind of talent and when you every, every player ranked 1,000 can say, I beat him who beat him who beat Ted, yeah. I've, got top, I've got an indirect win over a, top, a guy in the top 100, I think it's very hard to say, you know what, extinguish the dream, you know, go, go sell widgets, uh, you're done here. So yeah. I don't know how you tell these players to get on with it. Yeah, but I'm more – Maybe I was more focusing and thinking more about player 100 rather than player 1,000. Player 100 is a good player. Right, right. And player 100 probably can't afford the home gym and the, and the full-time physio, et cetera, without being able to play. As we know, some players will play 30 to 32 weeks a year just because they try to keep an income flow coming in. That's, I I'm, I'm guess I'm thinking more about how many of those players, as this prolongs, are going to have to say, look, I have to find something else to do. Right. I mean, you know, the player 100 can uh, barely but should be able to get into four majors. Yeah. You figure that's you know you, you play a little doubles and that's that's two hundred grand right there, so it's it's a hell of a start. I, I think it's hard to say to someone you're the one hundredth best player, you're the one hundredth best person in the world at a pursuit, and at the highest level you can make eight nine figures doing this pursuit. Um, t- time to go sell insurance. I mean it's 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 tough. I mean I, I have great respect for these. Uh, players and there's something almost tragic about being that I mean you know Vacek Pasupo will use use his name and I I don't think he's considering a job change but he's in his apartment he's doing push-ups and I mean this guy beat Andy Murray a few years ago when Murray was ranked number one in the world I mean he's been in the top 25 he's been on Davis Cup teams I mean this is someone who's really 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 good at what they do it's kind of heartbreaking to say you're you're at the 99th level but not the 100th time to pick up something else to do how long do you think tennis needs and, and, John, I went through this in 25 years ago in baseball when the horrible baseball strike, which was uh, almost what, between eight and nine months long yeah. of the players not being together. They were able to work out on their own and do individual things, but as far as team stuff. And when they finally, when Judge Sotomayor, who at that point was a New York judge, not a Supreme Court justice, 
uh, finally put an end to this nonsense and got the teams back. Baseball said, okay, you guys have about two weeks. We'll go have another. We had a real spring training again. They gave them two weeks, maybe two and a half, and said, we're going to start playing. When, when, when we get a, something of a green light for tennis, what do you think? How long does tennis need to ramp up? Like for, for the athletes themselves? Yeah, yeah to, to, for players to be able to be able to go out and really represent. Tomorrow. I don't know. I mean, I feel, don't you feel like these guys aren't home? I don't think anyone's putting on 30 pounds and watching Tiger King with bonbons. I mean, I think these guys are, they're professionals are staying in shape. There's I mean, it's, it's hand eye, it's muscle memory. I don't know if people are as sharp as they were six weeks ago. I don't know if everyone's going to feel quite have the cardio level they did going to the Australian open, but I think players are making the most of this time. And I think they are so eager to compete and Again, I, I don't see a lot of players letting themselves go. I think if you held a tournament starting tomorrow, you get a pretty pretty good level. You, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would think because, as you said, it's different places. Um, I, I spent uh, a, a fair bit of time the first week of our shutdown in our society. I spent a fair bit of time around some of the Olympic swimmers who live near me, uh, and Katie Ledecky being one, and was – involved with helping them find places to train because Stanford had shut them out. And they were at the point really, I think internally, they all wanted the Olympics to be postponed. And, and they were talking to me, the coach was talking to us saying, look, the Italian swimmers came in to get in the water right now. They can't get in the water. How are they supposed to prepare? So transfer that to tennis where because of the different restrictions in different countries, players may not be able to, if you can't get on a court and hit, if you don't have that access to a private place where you can go hit and not be violating shutdown rules, I, I, I just wonder. And I, but John, I'm also the first one to come. Look, nothing is going to be fair when we come back in this, right? To expect fairness, I think is 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 unreal. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you could you could argue uh, there things weren't fair six months ago, right? And you know, Roger Federer always gets to play the big courts, and Serena always gets to play. If she wants night, she gets night. If she wants day, she gets day. I mean, nothing's ever been 100% fair, but I, to me, the big, the big point of fairness to me is what happens if country X has a travel restriction? Um, can you hold an event that isn't open to all players who otherwise would have been eligible based on their rankings? I mean, that, that to me is the big one. And if, if some player happens to have hit more balls than another player, that's always going to happen. I mean, look, look at what happens in November and December, right? I mean, some, some players have access to training and some players – have a whole team and other players don't. I mean, they're always going to have that sort of iniquities. I, I just wonder about if country X is not, if the U S does not allow players does not allow anyone from country X to enter the country. Right. What do we do about a tennis player from there? Can we, can we hold an event where someone is denied entry? Well, no, I'm saying that's where I, my badge issue comes in again. I showed up. I just think that's going to be the qualifier. Look, you can come in, just you're going to get tested at the port point of entry. And if you pass the test, you get a badge. You can come in. You uh, you have a lot of optimism that 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 presupposes the world where anyone can get tested. Which uh, at least well, we're, yeah. we're not there yet. But no, I think I think you're right though. I think right. I think same things for schools, right? Yeah. I hear something else. I'm wondering. Do you think that in the interim, until we can actually have real the real tennis competitions again, do you think there's a shot that any between these agents and as you referenced earlier, television networks that are thirsting right now for any live sport that we will have exhibition events play that some of the players who can pass tests and prove 
we'll get together and just do a made for TV somewhere. I think there's certainly a market for it, especially as our hunger for, uh, for live sports is not going, uh, sated. I mean, there were, there, there was a UFC event. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was on, um, I don't know, it was like the middle Saturday in March when everything else had shut down and there was a UFC event that took place in Brazil. And this was treated like the Super Bowl. Every bar had it on. It was a top story on ESPN. This is some run-of-the-mill. I mean, this is, this is the equivalent of, uh, you know, the Uzbekistan Open. But just because it was live sports and actual competition that, you know, did, didn't have the outcome scripted in advance, people were watching this in droves. I mean, I think um, – I mean, we were joking, but before I, – I think – you know, we, we can still argue, there seems, still seems to be some debate about whether it's, it's cool to play tennis or not. But I always said, you know, N- Nadal could charge people five bucks and watch him train at the Nadal Academy and put up a webcam and you'd probably have a, a market for that. Um, but no, I, I think uh, definitely there is an exhibition market because I think uh, what, one thing we are realizing is there is no substitute for, for competition, right? I mean, we, we, love, we love Netflix and we love movies and we, we love all sorts of other fine arts that we're able to still enjoy, but the idea of two people going out there and not knowing how it's going to break mm-hmm. is something not to be uh, taken for granted. So you went uh, as part of your other job, one of your other jobs, with uh, 60 Minutes. You went to Mallorca, Majorca, as I learned when I went there years ago. So suppose, just I'm thinking by June, and hopefully more countries have this under some semblance of control. Suppose Roger gets on a plane and just flips over to Majorca and maybe you get Simona Halep and uh, oh, who else? Maybe Garbini Muguruza. She's in Spain. Uh, if she's in Spain, I'm not sure where she is right now. And you do a little thing in Majorca for TV. You have Roger and Rafa. You have two top women playing. You have some mixed dubs that go in with it. I'm just sitting there, I mean, I don't want to sound like an agent, but I'm sitting there thinking, somebody has to be thinking about this, right? It sounds like uh, the, the labor cup in a time of crisis. No, exactly. I mean, I, I think there is a market. I think people should get creative. I mean, pe- people, there, there is a demand for this, and that demand is not being met. And again, I mean, no one's advising anyone to do anything unsafe, and nobody wants to see protocols broken or stay-at-home orders um, disregarded. But yeah, I mean, you watch these these YouTube clips and you watch some of these, uh, these Instagram videos of you know, Djokovic playing tennis with a frying pan and people would probably, uh, people would probably pay for that. So yes, even if the tours, uh, if the tours slow play this, I think we still may have some creative options here. All right. So John, one of the other conversation points that has, I, I've read a few things about this already and I'm sure it's going to uh, evolve more as we head into summertime is what does this mean for the heavyweights, both mm-hmm. sides, right? Roger, Rafa, Novak, Serena. We've already seen Maria Sharapova before this struck. Maria chose to step away. Uh, Venus, who desperately wants to play in a sixth Olympics and will now be 41 by the time Tokyo 2021 happens. Uh, you know, I know we're all, we're all guessing right now, but the, the first question, I guess, that I've already heard referenced, what does this do for Roger's hopes to win another mix? especially at Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious what, what you say. I mean, I, I think there's a, the, the glass half full explanation is he needed this time off anyway for knee surgery. He's going to have access to the greatest care. He can retaper his schedule. 
nobody's catching up to him, right? I mean, nobody's, in, in the near future anyway, nobody's uh, making inroads against those 20 majors. Might this be a blessing in disguise? Might Roger Federer get this time back? I mean, the, the flip side is obviously, you know, father time is father time. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, what, what do you think? I, I, I'm interested, I'm maybe curious, because this is fairly new territory for Roger. Roger has been the Cal Ripken of tennis. Right. That's why I you know, personally think he's the greatest. He's certainly the greatest I've ever seen. I think he's the greatest of all time. And it's the multitude of things that he's done that are both excellence and longevity, especially 18 out of 19 Grand Slam finals is absurd. No one will ever in our lifetime come close to that. But he's never gone through this. Rafa is the player that has. Rafa has gone away for various injury reasons and come back and excelled. So to me, he's less of an interest in this one uh, than Roger because he, we've only seen Roger go away one time, right, for a small knee surgery and come back. Um, you know, obviously we know Wimbledon in its – Wimbledon is certainly his best. I mean, most everybody thinks that's his best shot. Um, no, I, I, I will still, I would not count out Wimbledon for him because we saw it last summer. He came one point away from doing something that no one has ever done, which was to win a major beating both Nadal and Djokovic. No one's ever done that. Right. I didn't think he had a prayer heading into that final Sunday. Not a prayer because no one had ever done it and how physical it was to beat Rafa in the semis. He came with a point of doing it. So I'm not going to count him out. But I am because he's never gone through this, John. That's the one curiosity factor that registers with me. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's remember, I mean, he, he had the motto, he had the back. I mean, it hasn't been a hundred percent flawless. I mean, I, I think you're right though. He hasn't had anything like this. No one has, but he hasn't had a break like this. He hasn't had it at age 38, 39. And I, I also think that. I, I think I wrote this the other day that with an injury, at least you have a timetable and you might not meet it and you may have some setbacks, but at least you say to yourself, boy, the doctor is telling me if I do X, Y, and Z, I should be ready by here. This is realistic. This is unrealistic. I think what's so strange about this is the players have, none of us do, we have no idea when the end point is coming. And, you know, I mean, you, you geared up in your head. All right, well, I'm going to practice on clay because after this six-week break, it's the French Open. No, wait, the French Open is going to be postponed. All right, well, I'm going to worry about grass. I'm going to get in my grass court mindset. I'll get out the grass shoes. I'm going to think about, well, Wimbledon's off. The Olympics get cut. I think it must be so hard mentally for these athletes not to have any sort of time certainty. And I think, to me, that's, that's almost as big a challenge as the break, is just not knowing – it's like, it's like someone saying, hey, go for a run. And you say, all right, well, how long is the run going to last? Oh, I don't know. Just run. I'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Later. Well, is it a marathon? Is it a sprint? Do I, is, am I running five miles? Am I paying? Oh, I don't know. Just run. We'll, we'll tell you when to stop. It's very hard to do that. And that's basically what these players are being asked to do right now. Would it work? I, I would be less optimistic for Serena. And I, I don't know that I have a concrete reason other than, you know, the fact that she's been so devoted to being a mother, having a family presence, and now, you know, just another year. I, I, I'm less optimistic that Serena can come back and do this. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think there are a lot of things here. Um, one of them is, you know, in the, in the previous major, Federer had a bit of a tweak. He got through it, and he still got to the semis and lost to Djokovic. No, no shame in that. I mean, remember, Chris, Serena didn't get out of the first week. And the other thing, too, is I think grass is really serene. I mean, if, if grass is Roger's best chance, 
grass is really Serena's best chance. And with Wimbledon saying, don't even bother us with postponements and strategic calendar dates, like gates are shut, guys. See you in 2021. I, I think that had to be really devastating to her. Yeah, uh, and you're right. Sir, as long as she can serve, that's exactly right. Uh, there's an aside. I was surprised Wimbledon, and you know more than I do about this, John, but I thought they might consider taking the vacant Olympic dates because they played the Olympics there in 2012 in that same window. Grass was fine. And they, by the way, they played the Olympics three weeks after they played the championships. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I'd say a few things. I mean, one of them is Wimbledon has an insurance policy, and I, th I think it was Chris Clary deserves some, some credit for uh, re reporting that out. The other thing, you and I are recording this on an afternoon when the, the British Prime Minister is in intensive care. So, I mean, even the most optimistic projections for the UK, I think we're going to be very, very close to uh, the dates. And Wimbledon, too, had no, and I, I don't entirely know why, but very early on, I mean, we're talking, I, I think, definitely still in March, but very early on, Wimbledon basically said, we want fans or we want nothing. We have no interest in this closed-door scenario, and we have no dates. We have no interest in calendar hopping. I think some of it is the grass as well. But you're right. I mean, the grass, in theory, should we, – we were there for the Olympics in 2012, and the grass held up fine. Um, I mean, I think Wimbledon didn't have to worry about September and October because the grass couldn't withstand that. But I think – very early on in this, Wimbledon basically said, we're either playing or we're not, but we're not messing around with these creative solutions here. And uh, I, I wonder how much of that is tied to this insurance policy. I wonder how much of this is tied to just sort of reputational, you know, we're, we're, we're Wimbledon and we're not, um, we're not going to abridge ourselves. I mean, I, I had heard that the French Open was seriously considering, I mean, obviously, Corona made that a non-starter, but the French Open was saying, listen, we'll hold this with no doubles, no juniors, no mix, no legends, just 256 singles players. I mean, those are the lengths the French Open was going to go to to try and get this in. Um, but two very different approaches to uh, this crisis, the French Open, the FFT, and uh, the All England Club and the LTA. So that Roland Garros scenario, was that for the regular dates, the May and June dates? Yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, that may still be the case for, uh, for September, October. I mean, you know, let's, let's sort of realistically, uh, it's, it's, it's crass, um, but that, that roof ain't cheap. And the USTA found that out too. And, and debt service is debt service. And you can ask the government for help. And I'm guessing these days, uh, local governments have bigger issues than subsidizing, you know, additional roofs for tennis venues. Um, I think financially the, the FFT is in a much different position than Wimbledon, put it that way. Yeah. And, and that's something that I think some tennis fans know, but probably not enough is that the Roland Garros, the revenues help fund French tennis. Mm -hmm. And just as the law and tennis association in Wimbledon, same thing. The LTA recognizes money that promotes tennis and the grassroots levels all throughout the UK from these events. It isn't just some rich baron sitting in his, Debenture box that is recognizing. <laughs> I like that. I'm thinking the Masters just postponed till November. And of course, it's patrons. Yeah, the patrons. And at Wimbledon, we cannot have the championships without our Debenture holders, correct? You know, yeah, I, yes, you're right. But the flip side of that is then there's a guy from the queue who took a bus down from Birmingham who paid 30 bucks and suddenly he's sitting three rows behind Roger Federer. So I, 
I, I love that about Wimbledon, that you've got the billionaire class and you've got people flying in on private jets and the, the Debinger crowd. And then they're sitting next to a guy who has body odor because he's been camping out in the field <laughs> the day before. It's, it's uh, one of the singular charms of Wimbledon. No, I, I, I'm saying, look, Wimbledon, the championships are in a league of its own. They're such a spectacularly run event. And I had, I'm sure, you've, you've covered the Masters, haven't you? I've been once. Once. Okay, so I had a chance to call work one Masters for television way back. And when I went to Wimbledon for the first time, I, it took me 10 minutes to say, my gosh, this is just August. It's just a different sport. But it's the same exact concept. A private club that runs the event that answers to no one, they run it pristinely and spectacularly on their terms and no one else's. Um, and they have women in the draw. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, I, 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 agree, I agree with you. But I, I, I just, I think Wimbledon is such a cool mix of sort of tradition and progressive. Yeah. And um, everything from their digital, you know, they, they've got a great digital presence. And they've, they've come a long way on race and gender issues. And you've got, I mean, again, I think the, the queuing thing is one of the coolest things in the world. But then you're, you're right. I mean, it's this private club who basically says we do what we want to do. And you know what? Oh, yeah, we could. Uh, I'm looking at the, the backdrop behind you. And for $20 million, British Airways would love to slather its logo on that green surface. But you know what? Nah, that would kind of ruin us. Uh, that, that wouldn't make it Wimbledon. So um, the backdrop behind me, John Wertheim was about 10 feet away when I took this picture. We went two years ago during Rolling Garros to tape a program for Tennis Channel based on John's brilliant book, Strokes of Genius. Tim Henman. Uh, who is a club member, was escorting us. And as I, I told the story before, John, it, you can't see my feet. I am about three inches off the grass because there were monitors from the yeah, right. to make sure that we could step three inches from the grass right. on one blade of grass. Uh, but let's do this again because it's going to be a while. So I don't know how many more old tennis matches we can watch. We, we so love Tennis Channel for so many reasons. Uh, by June, we may be showing like 1983 Uma first round. <laughs> That's what I'm a little concerned about. <laughs> that was uh, Slobodan Ivozenovic against uh, Bodan Ulirak. No, um, we're, we're all, I, I think Tennis Channel deserves an awful lot of credit for making the best of this, but I think That's we all are eager for uh, live competition in, in all of our sports. Stay well, stay healthy, and I'll reach out to you again. You as well. Take care. That was fun. All right, John. All right, that will do it for this week. Thanks again to Ted Robinson, my oxymoronic uh, guest host here. Uh, Ted was as much a guest as I was, but we uh, hopefully both got some audio content out of this and had a bit of uh, bit of fun in the process. Thanks, as always, to Jamie Lasanti. We eagerly look forward to reconnecting with Jamie, who is uh, holed up in New Jersey. Everyone, Stay safe, stay sane, hopefully stay home if you're uh, fortunate enough to be in a position to do so. And we will uh, continue talking tennis while, uh, unfortunately, tennis remains sidelined. All right, have a good week, everyone. Feel free to subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever your podcasts are bought and sold. Um, always helps to, uh, to subscribe, and we'll do it again in seven days. All right, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.